It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Hello and welcome to Dirt Radio. My name is John Langer. Dirt Radio is broadcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. In 1818, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley published her classic novel, Frankenstein. Since that time, the novel has been seen as a metaphor for the way that science can be used to create uncontrolled and uncontrollable monsters. That metaphor has survived through the years and still has purchase today. Of course, science has its benefits. In the midst of a global pandemic, we're relying on it to create a vaccine. But science bound together with technology, has a dark and unpredictable side. And that's what we're exploring with our guest in the show today. Louise Sales is the coordinator of Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project, and I spoke to her by phone last week. Just as a way of starting our conversation and to do some a little bit of scene setting, tell me about the Emerging Tech Project. What is it? What's its key areas of interest in terms of technology and broadly, what's its aims? So uh, Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project basically campaigns for a precautionary approach to new technologies. So basically making sure that any new technologies that are introduced are actually properly assessed for safety before they're released into our environment and potentially into our food as well. So our main areas of focus over the last few years have been on nanotechnology and um, also genetic engineering as well, some of the new genetic engineering techniques that are being introduced. And we've also looked at geoengineering as well, um, which is the deliberate manipulation of the Earth's climate. Now, tell me a little bit about gene editing and the so-called miracle cows. Yeah, so um, this story actually goes back to 2014 when a US company called Recombinetics um, announced that they'd produced these um, gene-edited hornless cattle. Um, so gene editing is basically a, a new sort of genetic engineering. And what industry has argued is that they just make small, precise changes to the genome. Um, but what is clearly illustrated in the case of these um, GM cows is that that's not always the case. Um, so for for years they they were arguing that oh these these cows are just the same as cows that could be produced in nature they're basically just speeding up the breeding process but interestingly um a US food and drug administration scientist discovered years later that um these GM cows actually had uh, bacterial genes um, that had been introduced through the genetic engineering process um so there's no way that they could not be regarded as GMOs also, my my understanding that is in terms of the this particular technology, a lot of countries have actually rejected this genetic modification technology. But Australia has been selected as as it were an ideal location for testing it. How did this come about? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so if if we look at places like like Europe, so the European Court of Justice ruled um, a couple of years ago that these new genetic engineering techniques pose the same risks as older GM techniques and need to be assessed for safety in the same way. The New Zealand government um, basically ruled that they were going to assess these techniques as 
GM Techniques. Um, and that was primarily because they were worried about their export markets, um, which are the same export markets as ours. So it's kind of bizarre that Australia has taken a different position. Um, so what's significant in the case of the GM cows is as soon as they found out that these cows um, contained a bacterial plas- plasmid, they abandoned the research in both the US and Brazil, which are actually really pro-GM countries. But as ABC's background briefing um, revealed a, a couple of months ago, um, the research continued in Australia. So we're concerned that Australia is basically being viewed as a soft touch for these new genetically modified organisms and effectively we're going to be subject to an uncontrolled experiment with these GMOs in our in our environment and also in our food. Why is Australia being considered a soft target? Is it is it something to do with the regulations that we have or the lack of regulations? That's right. So last last year the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator basically um decided not to regulate a number of these new genetic engineering techniques. Um, Now, the Greens challenged this decision in the Senate, but unfortunately, both the coalition and Labor voted to, yeah, to basically deregulate these techniques. Um, So unfortunately, that, that means that these techniques can be used to genetically modify animals, plants and bacteria and to release them into the environment with absolutely no safety testing at all, which we think is yeah, incredibly, incredibly dangerous. I mean, going back to the case of, of microbes, genetically modifying microbes, um, obviously we're subject to a global pan- pandemic at the moment, which is causing complete chaos. So the idea of allowing people to genetically modify microbes with no safety assessment at all just seems willfully reckless. Is the lack of regulation something to do with, look, I, I, I don't want to be too conspiratorial about this, but is it something to do with the way that these uh, big companies might have some leverage on, the, on various governments or on the government and perhaps on, on the Labour Party as well? No, I, I think that's completely correct. Um, so we, we just have to look at the political donations. So in the last few few years, um, both Bayer and um, Crop Life, which represents all the big GM and crop companies, have do- donated um, over a hundred thousand dollars to the, both major parties. Um, so they've got considerable leverage. Um, the head of Crop Life in Australia is um, a former Labour Party political advisor, um, and there's a real revolving door. And that's um, the same with yeah, our research institutions as well. So obviously. There's a number of public research institutions like CSRO um, that have also got, um, we would argue, a serious conflict of interest when it comes to these techniques because they're trying to commercialise them. But they've obviously got really good access to to the government and we're concerned that they're actually dictating government policy. They're arguing that these techniques don't pose any greater risk than natural breeding when in actual case of science is showing us the complete opposite. What what would you do with a genetically modified cow? Why why would you have it? So in in this case and with these GM cows, what they've done is um, so you get hornless cattle already, but what they've done is they've transferred the genes from a hornless cattle into a high milk yielding variety. Now you can do this through natural breeding, but it takes several generations. And um, so these were Holstein cattle, and you already have, they're all you already get. Um, hornless Holstein cattle. So, so we would argue that it's basically, yeah, they're basically just trying to 
speed up the breeding process, but obviously creating a great deal of risk in the process. Mm. And Emerging Tech, the Emerging Tech Project actually argues that we should be very concerned about these developments. Why, why should we be so concerned about them? Well, the, the main concern from a food safety perspective is that um, genetically modifying both plants and animals and microbes can produce if, if we're using them for our food, could potentially lead to the production of novel toxins and novel allergens. So that's that's a major concern. So I mentioned um, that last year, the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator uh, deregulated these techniques, but our food regulator, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, is also proposing to deregulate these techniques as well. And they're actually going to be going out for public consultation on this later this year. So we're concerned that obviously the ZANs decides to follow the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator's lead, then products from genetically modified animals are going to enter our food chain with no safety testing and no labelling. There wouldn't be any indication that these the, the food that you were getting in the supermarket or in the grocery store would be coming from these kinds of products. That's right, because they wouldn't be regarded as genetically modified, which we, we would argue is extremely misleading. So if you look, if you go back to Fazanza's primary objectives, they're meant to be about preserving public health and providing enough information so that consumers can make meaningful food choices. And we would argue that this basically deregulating these techniques goes against these two primary objectives. The other thing that that I've I've read in your in your article in Chain Reaction is that one of the things about this genetically modified animal uh, process is it poses serious ethical risk, ethical and animal welfare risks in terms of the uh, process itself. Yeah, that's right. So that's something that we're deeply concerned. Like a lot of the pressure to deregulate these techniques has actually come from plant industry. So we're really concerned that our regulators haven't actually properly considered the potential animal welfare implications of deregulating these techniques. So when these techniques are used in animals, they can result in yeah, unexpected mutations. Um, so for, in, for example, in the case of the GM cows, I think, I think 26 embryos were implanted and only a small handful of these survived. Most of them were spontaneously aborted. Some of the um, offspring that were produced had to be um, put down when they were just a few days old because they were deemed unviable. And that's fairly true of any any genetic modification of animals. It can result in your high high risk of spontaneous abortion, birth defects, um, heart problems, um, problems breathing. And we would argue that that's, it's completely unethical to subject animals to these kind of procedures um, when basically all you're trying to do is basically produce more milk. I would argue that's completely inhumane. You're listening to Louise Sales. She's coordinator of the Emerging Tech Project, one of the campaign arms of Friends of the Earth. And if you've just tuned in, you're with Dirt Radio on 3CR. Back with more after this. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. 
visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Now, let me turn to another very dubious technology that you've been tracking over the past few years, something called marine cloud brightening. And you'd better explain what it is, who's promoting this technology, and where is it going to be used? So, yeah, so marine cloud brightening is, 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 is a sort of ge- geoengineering. And what geoengineering is, is the deliberate um, engineering of our environment, and basically. So... Marine cloud brightening is what's called a sort of solar radiation management. So the idea is that you're making clouds brighter so that they reflect more sunlight back into the upper atmosphere. So that would result in a localized cooling effect. And so there's been proposals um, for a number of years now for marine cloud brightening experiments to, to basically try to counteract the effects of of climate change and global warming um, but obviously there's been deep concerns concerns about the potential environmental effects of doing this it might sound fairly benign um, but modeling shows that it could actually lead to increased rainfall in the tropics and um, reduce rainfall in um, in the rainforests of South America um, yep and <laughs> there's actually some science that suggests that it actually might not work at all um, where are they so, plan- where are they planning to do this and who's 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 planning to do it so at, at the moment well they've, they've actually already done the first um, global experiment and they were done on the Great Barrier Reef um, just a couple of months ago so unfortunately there wasn't a great deal of public awareness because it was obviously in the middle of a global pandemic and importantly, um, because of the potential risks of these techniques, there's actually a, the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity actually put in place a global moratorium against the use of these techniques because they can obviously have transboundary effects. So if one country decides to do geoengineering experiments, that could obviously have knock-on effects for, for other countries, um, particularly yeah, in the global south. This uh, technology is connected to an organization called the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. Is that right? That's right. So, yeah, this is, it's quite, you, you might remember a couple of years ago, um, there was this really out of the blue um, announcement by the federal government that they were de- donating $444 million to this little known um, foundation, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. Um, and some some journalists subsequently revealed that the Great Barrier Reef Foundation has actually got um, serious links to fossil fuel industries. Um, so, for example, one of their major donors is um, BHP, which is actually Australia's largest um, greenhouse gas emitter. So, and two of the um, founders of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation actually yeah, previously worked for for BHP and a shale oil, oil company as well. So there's serious um, links. Um, if you look at the Great Barrier Reef Trusts, uh, sorry, the Great Barrier Reef Foundations, um, their main donors, it includes a raft of um, 
a raft of um, fossil fuel companies um, and also, yeah, aer- aero, um, yeah, so companies like Qantas and, um, yeah, Boeing mm. as well. So it's so a big greenhouse gas emitters, basically. I, I'm I'm astonished by this. I I, uh, I read your piece that's coming out in Chain Reaction, and uh, of course I didn't know I didn't know about the uh, the the board uh, having such uh, well such nefarious connection with the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, and it's actually really really shocking. And when you look at what um, they're doing on the Great Barrier Reef, so these proposals like. Um, yeah, marine cloud brightening, we would argue are actually a dangerous distraction. Um, they're, they're not only potentially dangerous, um, they're also, there's also a huge opportunity cost associated with them as well because obviously all that money could be used to fund a rapid transition to renewables that we really need to see if we're going to tackle climate change. And so there was actually a Senate inquiry that looked at the Great Barrier Reef Foundation and the government's donation to them. And one of the main concerns that they raised was that none of the activities that the foundation were proposing are actually directly tackling the threats to the the main threat to the reef which is climate change now i, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into this uh, cloud brightening technology there you, as you said earlier there have been some has been some experimental work already done can you tell me what what actually happens when they do this stuff what what, what do yeah. they do so they actually, I believe in this instance, they actually used um, a modified snowblower, is my understanding, and and they put it on the back of a, um, put it on the back of the boat and blasted salt crystals up into the into the atmosphere. And the idea is that um, they create these little salt crystals create what's called condensation nuclei, and which basically so all the tiny water particles in the clouds gather together. And that produces a brightening effect, which then reflects the, the sunlight back into the atmosphere. And so this, the scientists are arguing that, yeah, this, this is a way to potentially cool down the waters in that area and, and to save the Great Barrier Reef. Um, so the first trial that they conducted was over a 40 square kilometer area. But they're talking about tripling that next next year and then going up to 10 times that area that area uh, the year after, which would basically be a 400 square kilometer area. Um, now, scientists have raised real concerns about the use of these techniques, the fact that they could affect rainfall patterns, um, which could affect not only the Great Barrier Reef, but also the tropical wetlands um, and the tropical rainforest in that area as well. And I mean, basically, they don't know, know, know what the potential environmental effects could be. Um, they're incredibly unpredictable, um, and also we're going to be throwing yeah, hundreds of millions of dollars um, at this with no guarantee that it's going to work at all. When we've already got proven methods to tack- tackle climate change, is is Australia the only country doing this, or have there been other countries who have adopted this particular technology? So the research group here. So as far as I'm aware, this is the first um, time this has been done, and. Um, they're also proposing doing it um, in California as well, and again, they're they're using saving the uh, cloud forest um, in California as a justification um, for. Well, actually, I think it might be Washington State, but um, they're basically using that as an ex- yeah as a justification for why they need to adopt these techniques. But what we're concerned is that actually sets a really dangerous precedent um, for the further 
appropriate enlargement of these experiments. Mm. And, and we simply don't know what the, the long-term effects of that are going to be. There, there's also a, another question which uh, you've mentioned in this piece that you're about to publish, is that there is, there's been some fairly dubious claims about the stakeholders involved and, and the input that they've provided and, and how that's been, in a sense, misrepresented. Yeah, that's right. So um, there's actually quite a lot of, in, of this information about this project on the on the website of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, um, and I'd, yeah, I'd really recommend anyone that's interested in this um, having having a look at that information. So one of the things that they did um, was they actually surveyed a representative proportion of the public, um, and they also made a really big deal about are we about best practice and public engagement and and how um, traditional owners and stakeholders would be involved in the co-design of this project. Um, But we've really seen no evidence of that happening. So for example, um, when they interviewed a range of stakeholders um, that were concerned about the reef, um, so this includes things like local tourism operators, NGOs, and other groups with a stake in the reef, basically. So they really cautioned about the about the use of um, unproven techno fixes and expensive unproven techno fixes. But clearly, the project hasn't taken that on board. They've already done, yeah, they've already started doing these experiments, and they've they've got a clear intent to roll them out even further. So we're concerned that they're they're not really interested in public engagement and real consultation they're just basically paying lip service to it so they also surveyed the public as well and not surprisingly the majority of the people that they surveyed and um, believed that using these techniques pose pose more risks than potential benefits mm. Lou there's lots more that we could talk about but I think we're just about out of time but what I was going to ask you finally is if people want to find out more about the emerging tech project and also some of the issues, the issues that we've been talking about today, where should they go to get some information? Yeah, we'd urge people to go to our website, which is emergingtech.fo.org.au, and you can sign up for our news updates and we'll keep you updated and let you know how you can get involved in the campaign. Well, thank you very much for being on Dirt Radio today and all the best with your work and keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, John. That was Louise Sales. She's coordinator of Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Project. And if you want to find out more about Frankenstein Tech as it's being rolled out across Australia, go online to emergingtech.fo.org.au. Louise's essay on miracle cows can be found in the Faux magazine, Chain Reaction, edition 138. And look out for her analysis of cloud brightening technology in the forthcoming issue of the magazine. We'll put up the links with all the details, along with a podcast of this show, on the 3CR Dirt Radio website. That's all from Dirt Radio. Back again next week, let's go out with Oingo Boingo and a track titled, appropriately enough, Weird Science. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Weird.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas it's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Hey all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us, 
and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter.